0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Funding for today's episode comes from a new podcast called Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and the Ring Video Doorbell. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today I want to bring our focus back to Edward Aids and the murder of Elnora Griffin. Hopefully, all of you had a chance to check out the bonus episode that dropped on Wednesday. If you haven't done that yet, go ahead and go back and listen to that. It's short, and it's just a brief explainer on what's going on in the Carrie Cook case. And so once you've listened to that, you understand that we're going to continue working at Aids' case, and I will keep you updated on what happens with Carrie's case as well. But there's a lot happening in Ed's case right now and we really need to draw our focus into it. And also before we get started today, I want to forewarn you guys that the episode next week is probably going to be a little bit shorter than normal. I'm actually going to try to go on vacation with my wife next week. I was just going to take the week off, but there's some more things that I want to cover and I think I have enough time this week to get in all the content and the information that I want to put out as we move on through this case. So like I said, the episode's going to be a little bit shorter. I'm recording two, actually three, counting the bonus episode that I recorded this week. But when I get back into town on the 24th, we'll be right back to normal business. And we have a lot more to still cover in this case. But in this episode, this week, I want to walk you through everything that I discovered while I was in Tyler, Texas last week. Like I told you in the last episode, I worked a lot of long hours while I was there and I did get a lot accomplished in Ed's case. So I want to break all of that down for you. My work on Ed's case last week began right after the judge banged the gavel at the end of the Carrie Max Cook hearing. When Carrie's hearing ended, like I mentioned last week, District Attorney Matt Bingham was standing just 10 feet in front of me in that courtroom. My very first thought after seeing how that hearing went was God, I hope, that Matt Bingham is true to his word. I hope that this is real, and that he is willing to be reasonable and actually cooperate in a case where a person is actually innocent. At this point, I have no way of knowing if that's true or not. I don't know if this was all just a horse and pony show, or if Bingham really is committed to righting these old wrongs. But whatever the case may be, I owed it to Ed to at least make that attempt. The post-conviction relief process is not an easy one, and it's not a short one. It takes a long time for a case to work its way through the court system. But on the flip side of that, if you have a prosecutor who's willing to work with you and is truly interested in the truth and seeking justice, that process can be cut to just a fraction of the time. So I went ahead and I introduced myself to Matt Bingham. I told him who I was, and I told him about the case that I'm working on. Now, like I said before, I don't buy his response that he didn't know who I was and that he didn't know about the case that I was working on. But more importantly, I gave him a card. I told him that I would like to sit down and talk to him about Ed's case to at least open up a dialogue and see if working with Matt Bingham is even a possibility. It's been over a week now, and I haven't heard from him yet, but I'm still hoping that that's the case. But that's where we stand right now with the district attorney's office. I have reached out. I've made the offer to sit down and talk, and the ball is in his court. And I have discussed this with Ed. And he has told me that he's absolutely willing to work with the prosecutor's office if that's what it takes for him to go home to his family. Ed's not interested in retribution or revenge. He's only interested in getting his life back. And I'm also hoping that maybe Mr. Bingham will be willing to discuss the Kenny Snow case as well. Kenny's case is a tricky one. All of the evidence points towards his actual innocence. One missing victim and another imposter put into a courtroom. Bill Cole, and remember that was the victim in the simple robbery saying that he doesn't remember a gold tooth on the assailant. I showed him the 1997 mugshot of Kenny Snow, and he says he doesn't think that was him. I've shown him a photo of the car that Kenny Snow was driving, and he said that he is certain that that was not the vehicle that the robber got away in. And the list goes on and on. But unfortunately, this type of case, because Kenny had given a confession and pled guilty to this charge, there was never a real investigation done, there's not a lot of documentation for us to work on, And the one thing that could have given him an easy exoneration was the DNA evidence that had been collected at the scene that the Tyler Police Department illegally destroyed in 2002. And because of all these circumstances, Kenny Snow's case is not a case that the Innocence Project can work on. However, Kenny Snow does have a case. He has a case of some extreme prosecutorial misconduct. And prosecutorial misconduct is grounds to have his conviction thrown out. But Kenny needs a lawyer, and unfortunately, you do not have the right to an attorney once you get to the habeas stage of your case, which is where Kenny is now. What that means is he cannot get a court-appointed attorney, so he's left to either attempt to write motions by himself or to hire an attorney to represent him and fight this case for him. So what I'd like to do now is try something a little bit different. We've done crowdfunding for lawyers before, but in this case, I really want to try and tap into the crowdsourcing aspect of this movement. What I'm hoping for and what I'm asking for is if there are any attorneys out there listening to this show who are licensed in the state of Texas, please send me an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com if you are interested in representing Kenny Snow pro bono. And I know this is a lot to ask, but I really believe that Kenny Snow deserves this representation. Kenny has vowed to do everything he can to help get Edward Aits out of that prison. And he's done so without asking for anything in return. He wants to right the wrongs that happened back in 1998. I'm just going to keep praying about it. I, just, well, I believe it. If, So even if they try to keep me from purging, I don't care. I, I'm going to do what's right. So, you know, it don't make a difference what they do, what they throw at me. So if, we, if I'm going to help him, I'm going to help him. I just made that, 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 that my mind's made up about this, and I'm going to help He is most certainly a man with a troubled past, but I believe that Kenny Snow is a good man. He's a man that's willing to fight for what's right, and I'm not willing to give up on his case. So again, if any of you out there are attorneys from Texas that would be willing to help Kenny Snow, know that you will have all of the resources of everyone that has been fighting these battles with us behind you. And so once again, let's all bind together and show the Smith County DA's office What the Truth and Justice Army Can Do. Once I left the courthouse, my first stop was to speak with a local Tyler defense attorney. This is someone whose name I had come across in the documents for Ed's case, but he was never really actually attached to the case. And I can't really get into all the details right now of how all of that worked, but I sat down to talk to him to try to get a little bit of background. That was one of the main focuses for this trip, was to really get a feel for what actually happened during the investigation and trial of Edward Eights. So this gentleman didn't have much knowledge, or really any knowledge, of Ed's case in particular, but he did have some knowledge of some of the key players involved. The first thing that caught my attention was that this gentleman told me that Ed Eights' trial attorneys weren't always defense attorneys. In fact, before working Edward Eights' case, both of them worked for the Smith County District Attorney's Office with David Dobbs. And in fact, from what he tells me, Ed's case was one of the first, if not the first, defense case that these two attorneys had ever worked together. Now, this isn't any kind of huge revelation, but it's just one of those things that you want to tuck away in the back of your head and remember. We went on to ask him what he thought about David Dobbs as a district attorney. And without hesitation, the first word out of his mouth was sleazy. This guy seemed to have everyone's number. Everyone that I've suspected of bending the rules in Ed's case, this lawyer confirmed that it's not something that he would put past any of them. I'd mentioned Jason Waller, Bobby Van Ness, and of course David Dobbs. Now I didn't lead him with any of this information. I just started giving him names and asking for his opinion. Now the one guy in this case that I've said early on that seemed like he was a straight shooter that kind of got caught up in the middle of all this was Dale Huckel. And sure enough, when I mentioned Dale Huckel to this guy, he said he wasn't real familiar with him, but as far as he knows, he's a decent guy, which was pretty much the impression I had from going through the documents. But as far as the others, after I'd went through this entire list of names, he said that these are some of the people that go along with the Smith County mindset of conviction at all costs. Then he gave me another turn of phrase that I hadn't heard before, and it makes a lot of sense when I've looked at all of these cases from Smith County. Remember, almost every case we worked, involves a jailhouse snitch or a witness that's on probation or a witness that's facing other charges and this guy just chuckled he said yeah with the smith county da's office their famous quote is do you want to be a witness or a co-defendant after leaving this attorney's office my next stop was right back to the courthouse He'd give me a little bit of new information and raised a few questions. So I needed to get to some of the documents in the courthouse that I hadn't already scanned to verify what he was telling me. Now, as we go forward with this, I'm sure you might be a little bit frustrated that like I'm being kind of coy and not telling you names and things. But you have to understand that now this is a case that is going to be litigated. I not only have to be very careful about any strategy and anything that I'm working on, but also I have sources that I need to protect. So if I'm not giving you all of the information about something, that's the reason why. So I went up to the courthouse to ask if the documents were still there. And this is when I found out that there were several boxes of Ed H Case files in the clerk's office. At least one of these boxes was full of documents that I hadn't seen before. I was curious as to why they were there because I hadn't requested them. And that's when the clerk told me that last week the district attorney's office had asked them to pull all these files. That would be the district attorney's office that doesn't know anything about Ed H Case. But in any event... I found the documents I was looking for and got them scanned in, as well as a few more, and then I headed across the street to meet with one of Ed's trial attorneys. Clip Roberson was nice enough to carve out some time out of his day to sit down and talk with me. For the short amount of time I spent with him, he seemed like a very nice guy. The first thing that I asked him was, do you believe that Edward Aates was innocent? And he told me he definitely believed that he was innocent. He said that as far as he knew, everybody on the team believed that Ed Aates was innocent. And, of course, that was a relief to hear, because these people knew the case presumably better than anyone else. And he made no qualms about the fact that he truly believed that Ed was innocent. So that was good. So then I asked him the same question I asked the previous attorney. What was David Dobbs like as a prosecutor? In an exact contrast to what this other attorney had told me, Mr. Roberson said that he thought Mr. Dobbs was a good district attorney, he was fair, and he was a good guy. Which, I'll be honest, really surprised me. Because over these last six months that I've been working in Smith County, I've talked to a lot of attorneys, and he's literally the first person that had anything good to say about David Dobbs. But he's certainly entitled to his opinion, and I figured, well, if anyone would know, it would be him. I mean, after all, he worked with Dobbs in the prosecutor's office. And other than that, there wasn't any real groundbreaking information that came out of our discussion. So then I set off to talk to Ed's other trial attorney, Tom McLean. My encounter with Mr. McLean was very brief. I happened to get to his floor just as he was getting ready to get onto his elevator. I introduced myself to him and told him that I was trying to get some background on the Edward Aids case, and he told me that he had to run because he had to be in court. But as he was getting into the elevator, he said something that really got my attention. He said, oh yeah, David Dobbs texted me about that case last week. David Dobbs, the now private attorney who no longer works for the prosecutor's office, was texting the trial attorney from a case that he prosecuted 18 years ago. As the elevator doors closed, I couldn't help but think, why would Dobbs give a damn about this case? If everything was on the up and up, and everything had been done right, then why, 18 years later, is he poking around trying to get information about it? Maybe he's just bored or doesn't have anything better to do with his time. But whatever the reason was, I didn't have time to sit there and think about it, so I headed off to my next stop. I wanted to go meet with the investigators from ISIS. Now, that's not the ISIS that's in the news right now, and it's actually no longer the name of the company. But they're the investigators that were hired by the defense to investigate Ed's case. If you've been keeping up with the documents of the case, you'll see up on the website the testimony of Tim Lowndes. Tim Lowndes was one of the investigators with ISIS. So I sat down and chatted with the owner of the company, and he remembered Ed's case. As a matter of fact, he even got Tim Lowndes on the phone while we were there. And I asked him the same thing that I asked the trial attorneys. Did you believe that Ed was innocent? And again, without question, he said that he absolutely believed that Ed was innocent. So now we have the trial attorneys and the investigator that worked the case. We're all convinced of Ed's innocence. This is a good sign. And so then I asked him about David Dobbs. And he told me that him and David Dobbs, and Jack Skeen for that matter, were all good friends from way back. Again, that doesn't mean there was any kind of misconduct on their part. And I'm not even suggesting that this was a dishonest guy, I think that he would probably have told me that, no, he was sure that Ed was guilty to try to throw me off. He didn't do that. But it did help to continue to paint a picture of what was going on in that trial. I've said from the outset, I can't believe that Edward Aates was convicted without a stitch, without a fabric, any kind of physical evidence whatsoever tying him to that murder scene. Nothing. All of the circumstantial evidence points towards Elnora's boyfriend, Leonard Mosley. That doesn't necessarily mean he's guilty either, but certainly when you look at the case, he's a much more logical suspect than Edward Aids was. And so all I really found out was that Ed's entire defense team, all of them, both trial attorneys and the private investigators, were all friends with the prosecutor. McLean and Robertson actually worked with him in the DA's office, and the investigator from ISIS said that he was good friends with him, and Skeen. And it's also really strange that of all the people I've talked to in Tyler. And I've talked to a lot of defense attorneys, former prosecutors. There are literally only four people that had anything good to say about David Dobbs at all, out of everyone. And those four people were Ed's trial attorneys and private investigators. But other than that, I did get some new information from these group of people that I spoke to that day. For starters, both the investigator from ISIS and Cliff Robertson confirmed to me that in Ed's first trial, there were two black jurors on the panel. But in Ed's second trial, where he was convicted, the jury was all white. Roberson especially believed that that played a big part in why he was convicted in that second trial. And while I was there talking to the investigators, I asked them if they had any paperwork or any files on the case. I could tell from the trial transcripts that they had done a lot of interviews. They had taped interviews. They had transcripts of interviews. There was a lot of investigation that they did. And in fact, he told me that there was actually, if he remembered correctly, almost an entire banker's box full of documents from their investigation into Edward Ate's case. But he said that he didn't have them anymore because during the trial, he was ordered to turn all of that over to the prosecution. And when he said that, I remembered back in a sidebar in the trial transcripts that Dobbs said that he wanted to see all of the interviews that were conducted by ISIS. So with that being the case, at least we knew where to look for them. If they had been turned over to the prosecution, which is exactly what he said they did, he said he gave them to the defense attorneys for them to give them to the prosecutors, then they should be in the DA's file. So then I headed down to the Cotton Belt Building in Tyler. That's the storage facility for all these court documents. When I walked into the Cotton Belt Building, I told the guy there that I wanted to see everything that was attached to this case. I gave him the name and the cause number. He looked at it. He started to get up and then turned right back around and said, I can tell you we don't have anything. And I said, what do you mean you don't have anything? How can that be possible? And he said that the district attorney's office the week prior had requested all of the documentation on that case. So they have it all at this point. So by dinner time on Monday, one thing I at least knew for sure is I definitely at least had David Dobbs and Matt Bingham's attention. After I made contact with everyone that was a part of Edward Ace's legal team, next I moved on to tracking down some of the witnesses. The first person that I wanted to talk to was Kubia Jackson. As a reminder, Kubia Jackson was the one that told police that on the night Elnora was murdered that she had called Elnora and Elnora told her that she was sitting there talking to Edward. This statement, which later became trial testimony, really was the linchpin of the state's case. It was literally the only thing they had to tie Edward to that house. Again, there were no fingerprints, no hairs, no DNA, no witnesses, nothing. There was only this hearsay statement from Kubia Jackson saying that Elnora told her that Edward was there. So Kubia is someone that I need to talk to. I got in the truck and I headed down 31 towards Kubia's house. As I was heading down the road, I thought maybe I should stop and talk to Johnny first. And again, I don't mean to be rehashing things, but I want to make sure everybody's clear on who's who. Johnny Pryor was Elnora's cousin and her neighbor. She lived right next door to the trailer. So I swung into Johnny's house to check on her. I haven't heard from her since my last trip to Tyler. Johnny came out and talked to me for a few minutes, and eventually she invited me in. She seemed a lot more open to talking to me this time around. I went inside and sat on her couch, and ended up spending about an hour and a half there. I didn't see the calloused woman that I saw last time I was in Tyler this time around. She was almost excited to see me. She was smiling. She was interested in everything I had to say. She was joking with me when I walked in. She was just getting ready to go on a trip to visit some family, and she had bought two new air mattresses, and she had them blown up in her living room. Said the instructions told her to blow them up and leave them inflated for a couple of days, so I had to help her move the air mattresses around, and then she just really opened up. I told her that I wanted to get a hold of Elnora's family. That's one thing that's really been frustrating me in this case. Of everyone that I've talked to, everyone I've come in contact with, the people that I want to speak to the most are Elnora's family. They may cuss me out or tell me to leave them alone. I don't know how they'll react, but they at least deserve to know what's happening. They deserve to know that I'm reinvestigating the case and that the man who has been sitting in prison for 18 years for the murder of their family member is not the person who killed her and that the real killer is still out there. Johnny didn't have any contact information for Elnora's kids, but the person she was going to visit does. So she promised me when she goes down there, she's going to give them my card and try to put me in touch with Elnora's son and daughter. I asked Johnny if she would be okay with me questioning her about the events on the night that she found Elnora's body. I didn't want to push her, but surprisingly she told me she had no problem with it, and she walked me through the events of that night. And as soon as she started, it's obvious that these events have been burned into her memory. It was a night that she'll never forget. Johnny told me that she doesn't know who killed her cousin. She always assumed that it was Ed, because that's what the police told her. And he was convicted. And she kept coming back to the fact that Kubia said, Elnora said, she was talking to Ed that night. But she told me that the reality of the situation is, she has no idea about what the case was against Ed. She was sequestered through the trial because she testified. She has no idea what the testimony was, what the evidence was. She said that she really only knows what she's read in the paper and she has been more than willing to help in any way that she can to figure out once and for all who killed her cousin. And like I said, her memories were vivid and they were accurate. Listening to her describe the events of that night followed along point by point by point from what she testified at trial in 1998. I mean, it was incredible, really. Every little detail in those trial transcripts were exactly the same as the details as she described them to me. Everything from where the light switch was, if the light was on or off, everything. When she called 911, when she asked Mrs. Dews to come down with her. But there's one thing that has really caught my attention. It's a small thing, but it's something that could be significant. One of the reasons that I was asking Johnny to walk through what happened again that night is because in the trial, during her testimony in 1998, she testified that when she walked in the door, she looked to her left, and saw Elnora laying completely naked on the floor next to the couch, and that there was a towel over her throat. Well, I have all of the crime scene photos that were admitted at trial, and in none of those photos is there a towel over her throat. She's just laying there completely nude. So I thought it was possible that maybe she misspoke at trial, but as she walked through her experience again with me that night, she again told me, I just remember looking over there by the couch, and there she was, nude There was blood everywhere, and there was a towel over her throat. And I'm perplexed by this towel. If she's right, and that is indeed what she saw, then it's definitely in contrast with the crime scene photos that were presented at trial. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's some grand conspiracy here. It could be that there were crime scene photos taken before anybody touched her, and then the towel was moved away and more crime scene photos were taken. And that's actually standard practice. In any crime scene investigation, you start your photos from the outside, you work your way in, you document everything with photographs before you move it. But if she was right, and there was a towel, and there were photographs of the towel on her body, why would the prosecution not have admitted those photos into evidence? It could be for a completely innocuous reason. The purpose of showing the crime scene photos at the trial is most certainly to try to tap into the emotions of the jurors. They want them to see how brutal the crime scene was. And that's not a Smith County practice. It's a common practice amongst prosecutors. So maybe they only showed the pictures with the towel moved so that they could see how brutal the killing actually was. But if Johnny's right and that towel is really there, it does tell us a little bit more about that crime scene. If Elnora had been beaten up and her throat slashed and she was on the ground dead and she would have died within seconds from that injury and then someone went back and put a towel over the wound that is a clear indication of remorse. And some people put a lot of weight into profiling and some people think it's junk science. And I'm not here to argue about that. But for my studying of criminal behavior, which admittedly is limited, typically only someone with a personal or intimate relationship with the victim would do something like try to cover the wound up or try to cover the body up. And this is not definite, concrete, smoking gun type information, but it's just one more piece of evidence that points away from Edward Eights and towards someone who had an intimate relationship with Elnora. After we had sat inside and talked for about an hour, Johnny asked me if I wanted to go over to the trailer and see it. And I was actually really stunned that she had asked me that. She said that her brother Leon actually has been living in the trailer for a while, and he wouldn't mind. So sure enough, we got up, we walked over to the trailer, and Leon was just as kind and sweet as Johnny was. Surprisingly, he had no problem with us coming in and looking around. It was really eerie walking in there. The carpet had been changed, but the linoleum in the kitchen was still the exact same linoleum that was there when the murder occurred. I've stared at that linoleum for hours analyzing that footprint, and like I said, it was an eerie feeling to walk in and see it. Everything was still laid out almost exactly as Elnora had it laid out. The bedroom where the struggle began. It's the same size bed in the same location. The dressers are in the same location. As a matter of fact, I believe one of the dressers is the exact dresser that was in there when Elnora was killed. Johnny actually wanted me to show her and walk her through how the crime occurred. Because again, she really had no idea. And so reluctantly, I did. I walked through step by step of how the murder occurred. How the struggle started in the bedroom and how the killer tried to choke her in there, and almost succeeded. But Elnora got away, and then she made it to the front door, and she ripped the curtains off in the struggle, and then knocked the lamp off the table behind her, and then she made it just a few more feet before the killer caught up to her, and slit her throat. And in doing so, in walking through the hypothesis or the theory of this crime, I got a whole new perspective on things. Nothing necessarily very important, but what I noticed is, This trailer is a lot smaller than I thought it was. It looked so much bigger in the pictures. Leon even let me take some photos myself. And when I look at my photos compared to the crime scene photos, it just looks bigger in the crime scene photos. It took me a little while to figure out why. And finally it occurred to me, I hadn't taken into account the fact that Elnora was so small. Remember, she was only 4 foot 4 inches tall. So in the crime scene photos, where her body is laid out across that floor, it puts everything else into a perspective based around her size. And since she was so small, the rest of the room looked much bigger. While I had Johnny and Leon sitting there, I had one more question to ask them. Something that I've never been able to figure out after reading through all of the trial transcripts and all of the notes that I have in the case. No one seems to know why Elnora left Dallas. So she was from Dallas and she had just moved that trailer in Tyler in January before she was killed. There were references in a few of the interviews where people were telling the police to check into why she left Dallas. I don't think that it's relevant in the case, but it just struck me as odd. And when I asked her, Johnny didn't know either. She said that she always thought it was strange, that Elora came to her and said she wanted to move down there. And she said, I always thought it was strange because she didn't even have a job here. And She did eventually get a job, but she didn't have a job secured when she moved to Tyler. Leon told me that Elnora actually used to live with him in the Dallas area and was living with him right before she moved to Tyler. And he said that he never understood why she decided to move. The best explanation Leon could give was the fact that Elnora worked for a church. She was either a missionary or worked with missionaries, and she'd been staying in a house owned by the missionaries while they were gone out of the country. And shortly before she moved to Tyler, the missionaries had come back and Elnora had to move out. That's why she was staying with Leon. So he said that's all he could think of, is that she needed a place to stay. But even he thought it was odd, because she had a job in the Dallas area, and she could certainly find another place to rent. But in any case, still to this point, we don't know why Elnora moved to Tyler. We just know that she did. Before I left, Johnny did tell me something else. She told me that she always thought Ed was kind of a troublemaker. She didn't really know him that well, but he was good friends with her son. They grew up together, and she said that he was always getting in trouble at school. And none of that really means a whole lot, but it does maybe explain why it was so easy for the family and friends to accept that Edward was the one that killed Elnora. They had no real personal knowledge of it, but it seems like they kind of thought that he was bad news. And Ed's told me that it's not entirely untrue. He said that he had actually dropped out of high school at one point. He went back and got his GED and eventually went on to college, but he was a bit of a rebel in high school. After we'd been talking for a while, I looked down at my phone and realized it had been an hour and a half and I still needed to get out to Kubia's house. Johnny tried calling Kubia for me to let her know that I was coming, but unfortunately Kubia wasn't home. But she did promise me that she was going to give Kubia my number and let her know that I'm a nice person and that she should talk to me. And before I left, Johnny did have to take a few minutes to show me some of her collectibles. Johnny actually volunteers and teaches black history. She goes to schools and churches, and she's got a really cool collection of old antiques and models, and she was definitely really excited to have someone to show them off to. And after a really enjoyable visit with Johnny, I took off and headed down the road to Kubia Jackson's house. And unfortunately, when I got there, Kubia wasn't home. By that point, the sun had set. It was getting pretty late, so I retired back to my hotel room to start reading through some of these new documents. After reading into the early hours of the morning, I realized there were still a few more documents that I needed. So the first stop the next morning was right back to the courthouse. I made copies of everything that I needed. I made a few more stops that I'll talk about in another episode, and then I headed out to see if I could track down Monica Bush. Remember, Monica was Ed's girlfriend at the time. The night of the murder, he had went to her house. And I wanted to talk to her about why her testimony changed. I wanted to know why she originally told the police that Ed had gotten to her house at 10 o'clock. And then in her next interview, she said that Ed had gotten there at 10 o'clock. And at the first trial, she testified that Ed had gotten there at 10 o'clock. But by the second trial, she testified that Ed didn't get there until 11.20. That just never added up to me. Well, I lucked out with Monica. When I got to her apartment complex, she happened to be pulling in and walking into the house after work. And to be honest, I think I scared the hell out of her. There she is getting out of her car with an armful of groceries. And here comes a stranger asking her if she wants to talk about her ex-boyfriend from 25 years ago. Monica was very nice, and she was very reluctant to talk about the case. She was kind to me, and she talked to me, and she opened up to me a little bit. But as far as that case went, as she put it, that's something that she had put out of her mind a long time ago. It was a very tough, emotional time for her. All she would really say about her testimony is that whatever she testified to at trial, that's what happened. She told the truth. And I asked her if she remembered why the testimony changed, why the time of Ed's arrival had changed over that five-year period. And she just said, whatever I said at trial was the truth. And I asked her if anybody had pressured her or pushed her into changing her testimony. And she said, if you're talking about coercion, no, that didn't happen. And I asked her if she remembered who it was that had interviewed her. And she said she didn't really remember and she really didn't want to think about it anymore. She got very emotional, not necessarily about the case, but she's recently suffered some pretty traumatic losses in her life. And those losses were still weighing very heavily on her. And bringing up this old skeleton out of her closet was just too much. It was more than she could bear. And of course, I was frustrated because at trial, she testified about how irritated she was that so many people had talked to her, that they wouldn't leave her alone. She testified about how mad she was that when Deputy Steve Cheney called her the night the body was found while Ed was still in the interrogation room and immediately told her that Ed had killed this girl, that he had raped her and sodomized her, all of this just two hours into the investigation when they didn't know any of those things. And in fact, Elnora was not raped or sodomized. But I was frustrated because I know these things happened. I know that lots of people talked to her. I know that she was very annoyed by it. But she didn't want to talk about it on that day. And especially given how emotional she was, I didn't want to push her. I just gave her my card and I thanked her for her time. And I left her to go inside and eat her dinner. After that, I made another try to get old Akubia. I tried calling, no answer. I went out to her house again and again she wasn't home. And by the time the week was over, I never was able to make contact with Kubia. But I intend to keep trying. Later that night, I sat down with Allison Clayton. You heard from her at the end of the episode last week. Allison Clayton is an attorney with the Innocence Project. Throughout the course of investigating this case, I've been in communication with Michael Ware, the executive director of the Innocence Project. I've talked to him a lot about Ed's case. And throughout the course of these months, he's asked me to obtain more information. He needed trial transcripts. He needed witness statements. He needed trial exhibits. He was the reason for a lot of my trips to Tyler. I thought if the Innocence Project is interested in Ed's case at all, then I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to convince them to take it on. Well, just a few weeks ago, while on the phone with Mike, he told me that the Innocence Project is going to take Ed's case. He assigned the case to Allison. I haven't spoken about it up until this point because there was a lot of paperwork that needed to be shuffled back and forth. But now, Ed finally has an attorney to join in this fight with us. This is a short, about 10-minute interview with Allison Clayton, so you can get a better understanding of who she is and what she plans to do with Ed's case. I'm here today with Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas. And Allison is going to kind of explain to us what the process is going to be, what she's going to be doing, both with Ed's case and just kind of how the Innocence Project works a case to give you an idea of how this process works. So Allison, can you first kind of break down for us when you take on a new case like Edward Aid's? In the initial phases, you're not filing off motions and things like that, right? You're, you're, you're still kind of in investigative mode.
2: That's right, so before you can ever go into court or file any kind of motion or document, you have to understand what your case is that you're working with. You need to know the facts of the case, you need to know what it is you're dealing with, you need to know what might be out there that you can work with or what's not there to work with. So before you have the ability to go into court and to sign your name to a document saying, this is these are the facts that I believe or in this case, you have to know what those facts are. Sure. So you have to do a lot of investigating into the case before you're even ready to file documents. And a lot of times that investigation may lead nowhere. That investigation may lead to somewhere that's good for somebody, but not necessarily an innocence project.
1: So, and and that's where the phase that we're in right now, or you're in right now with the Edward Aids case. Uh, From my understanding, you've been assigned to the case, and now you're in the process of gathering information and starting an investigation. That's right. So, So what is the process? I know... Ed's case came to the Innocence Project in in an unorthodox way through the show and through my work and connections with Michael Ware, and that's how it came. But typically, how does a case get to the Innocence Project? Because it's quite a process, isn't it, to get to this point?
2: It is. If somebody does not have the support or the backing or or, or something, somebody out there somewhere uh, independently working to bring the case to the Innocence Project's attention, then the person can also write into the Innocence Project, into any Innocence Project, And ask us to look at their case. The way they do that is typically they'll write in a letter saying, you know, this is me, this is my case, this is what happened, I'm actually innocent. And we'll pick up that case, we'll look into what it is they're saying in the letter, and if it looks like it's a case at the Innocence Project, that would be appropriate for the Innocence Project, then we'll send them a questionnaire. And the questionnaire basically will give us all the information that we need to know to decide whether we should advance in the next step of our process, in the next step of our investigation. Really, it tells us whether we should even begin the investigation in earnest in the first place. Right. So, for example, some of the questions you'll see in, in these in these questionnaires are one of the biggest questions in there is, are you actually innocent of this crime? And if you get somebody who, who wavers on that or who doesn't want to answer that question, Well, then that's a big red flag. That's not something that's appropriate for the Innocence Project.
1: Because the Innocence Project only, I mean, there's a lot of ways to have a conviction thrown out, due process violation. But you, your organization only works cases when you're dealing with someone who is actually innocent. That's
2: right. You can have people who are convicted who shouldn't have been convicted. You know, they could have had ineffective assistance of counsel. Or it could have been some evidence that was not initially presented that should have been presented. And, and that's true. They, they shouldn't have been convicted if if there was more evidence out there. That for whatever reason the prosecutor didn't disclose, or, or whatever. There can be a, there are a lot of different reasons why a person's conviction may be wrongful conviction, but they're actually guilty. Right. But that's those aren't the kinds of cases we're interested in. The only kind of cases the Innocence Project are going to take up are cases where we really believe the person could actually be innocent.
1: In doing so, and, and having that be kind of your. Mode of operation. The nice thing is that you're, you're literally working for justice for both the wrongfully incarcerated and the victim. Absolutely. Because if you're dealing with someone who is actually innocent of a crime, then that means the person that actually committed the crime is still out there somewhere. That's right. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been a really great process for me getting to know everybody in the Innocence Project through this process and kind of realizing, cause I didn't realize that that's exactly what you guys did, that you only worked actual innocence cases. So what, in the questionnaires, it's a pretty big questionnaire, isn't it?
2: Oh yeah, it's, it is. It's, uh, we try to make it as short as possible. And honestly, it's, it's because we want people to be able to fill it out easily, but also, you know, we can't be mailing out a whole bunch of stuff that costs a whole lot of money. Right. You know, because we're still paying postage on things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's as condensed as we could possibly make it in like an initial, you know, just first glance. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think 10 pages long at this point, not including the additional. Questions that we have to ask, and other specific kinds of cases, we'll fill it. We'll, um, we'll send in additional kinds of questionnaires that they need to answer.
1: Right. I think Ed told me he stayed up all night to f- to finish filling. And he his just questionnaire. got
2: the basic questionnaire because there wasn't anything additional in his case that right. we need information on. Ed's case is completely different from the 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 traditional case because not only is it a, re- a referral, a lot of times we'll get in referrals from other attorneys. And those are are excellent cases because we know they've already been kind of vetted by someone who really understands the case, who really knows the facts, who knows all the players, who has lived the case, and and they're coming to us saying, this person is actually innocent. And those are excellent cases because we know that somebody has really looked into it and that, that, that they know coming to us that it would be an appropriate like innocence project type case. Sure, sure. And in Ed's case, it was even a little bit more different because as far as I know, this is you. We don't typically get in cases from. Usually, it's the attorneys,
1: right? Who not are a working random the from Michigan No, no,
2: not not a podcaster. <laughs> Definitely not a podcaster. First one from a podcaster. Yeah, first first one from a podcaster. It's it's almost always from attorneys who have worked the case or who've had some kind of dealings with the case who know that, that their client is innocent and who are looking for help for their client once their case reaches a point where they can no longer help their client then they, they come to the Innocence Project because they know we can help their client, or we can try. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. <gasps> no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I just I, I can't stress enough what an incredible organization it, it is. I've been working with or talking to the the higher ups in the in the Innocence Project since since I started the Kenny Snow case, and it wasn't necessarily trying to get them to take the case, but they were resources. Um, you know, Darby Dickerson from TTU. It's like, hey, you know, you know, Michael Ware might have some information on this, Gary Udish and Corey Session, who interviewed on the show. So I, I've got to know these guys a little bit over the time. And it was pretty incredible to me, you know, in, in, in my conversation with Michael when he decided that the, he wanted to put somebody on this case and move forward, that he was so open to the fact and so committed to the cause of helping the, the wrongfully convicted of, act, you know, that are actually innocent. That he was willing to take the time to talk to this random podcaster guy and listen to what I have to say. And he was, I mean, he blasted me with some tough questions. You know, he's, you know, I remember talking to him when I I was telling him, you know, Mike, I think think Ed is actually innocent. Like, I, I really do, like, I don't say this very often, but I really believe that the facts support that he did not do this. And he's like, well, talk to me when you get trial transcripts. Two days later, I'm on a plane and I'm down here and I'm copying trial transcripts and everything. I was like, "Okay, Mike, I got the transcripts." You know, (laughs) it's like, "I got now what else?" You need. Well, you need. You're going to need this, and you're going. We need to know this, and we need to know that, and and so then I'm pouring through the transcripts and all the thing. But but the fact that he was willing to to entertain the idea and just not and even though it came in an unorthodox way to. To consider it and then get us to this point is it speaks a lot of the organization. It's a great organization, and it's great to be working with you guys. So as you move forward, and and I want to take this minute to kind of point out to all of you, I know everybody's really excited that Allison is involved, and no one, no one is more excited than I am that the Innocence Project is involved in this case. Well, other than maybe Ed, Ed's Ed's pretty excited, (laughs) really excited. And so you maybe you're going to want to know what's going on. And I want to take this opportunity to tell you guys that you're not going to be hearing from Allison on the show. Maybe at some point if there's some kind of an update that she wants to give briefly, but much like what was going on during the Anand case, there's two different prongs happening here. The Innocence Project of Texas, you know, namely Allison and will be her law students that'll be helping work the case. They will be working the legal angles of all of this and going through all these processes. And I will be continuing to investigate this case as an investigator. But those two directions of this case kind of have to stay separate namely because in order for me to be effective in doing my job i have to be able to operate without without affecting anyone else so you know i can't be affecting allison's law license with my shenanigans i'll be doing my investigation independently of what the innocence project were doing you know allison and i got we got a couple days to get to know each other uh, here in tyler this week she came down we started gathering documents together i was briefing her on the case Kind of getting started and giving her an overview, and from this point forward, we pretty much are going to be party company.
2: The work that you're doing on your podcast, all of your listeners and people who help in what you do, may very well prove to be invaluable in the case. I mean, it—you guys may uncover the thing that's, that's going to lead to great things for Edward. And so, what you're doing is it may end up really being invaluable. But what you're doing. And what you guys do is, is not this, the same kind of thing that we're going to be doing from the legal angle. Right. It's not the kind of approach that, that we're taking on things. Because right now, especially, we're really, we're just investigating things. We're investigating his case mm-hmm. to see if it's appropriate, an appropriate case for the Innocence Project to start filing motions in. Right. If there's anything there that we can file a motion on. And what happens if we get into it? And who knows what's going to end up happening. But what happens if we get into any case and it turns out there's just nothing we can do for the person? That doesn't mean there's nothing that that nobody can do for him. It just means it's not something we could necessarily do for him. I mean, other attorneys might be able to do that. But the focus of of the Innocence Project of Texas is to do what we can to help get the exoneration of people who are actually innocent.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes... The fact that there may be nothing that you can do doesn't mean that the client isn't innocent. They could very well exactly. be innocent, but there are legal standards that have to be be able to be met. So, for example, there there can be cases that are that are dead unless there's new evidence, or that's that exactly are, correct. Yeah, or there's a DNA test may prove innocence, but the DNA's gone or something right. that has been destroyed. You know, so it, and that's kind of what you mean, right? That if if there's if there's nothing you can do. It's not about what you know, it's about what you can
2: from the legal angle, it's about what we can do as attorneys right, and there's you know attorneys operate in a courtroom, and if there's not nothing that we can take to the court, then from the legal aspect of it there's there's not there's nothing we can do
1: right. That's the way this goes is so that my work isn't handcuffed by being tied to the legal organization.
2: Well, you're not an attorney, and you're not interested in the legal aspect of it. You're right. Your your aim is completely different.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I'm interested in the legal aspect of it. You know, I were, I, I kind of know that if I could find this out, that's something I could give to you. And it, you might it, be able the to same use. thing on my end. Yeah, I'm
2: interested in what what you can find out. Right, but I, I can't. I'm I'm not going to be doing the things that you're doing. Just like you're not going to be doing the, the kind of research that I'm doing.
1: Exactly. We're, we're going in two different angles.
2: Big picture, Bob. Big picture.
1: <laughs> nice pull. This has been awesome for these last couple of days for Alice and I to get to know each other and overview the case. And we kind of have an idea of the directions that both of us are kind of trying to go with it. And now we're going to go off and do our thing. So like I said, you, you won't be hearing from Allison probably for a while. There may be an ep- update at some point if there's a motion filed or something like that. But other than that, you and I, you the listeners and, and I are going to continue on and keep doing our work and know that in the background that the Innocence Project of Texas is going to be doing their work to see what they can do for Ed. And that's something that I, I wanted to make sure I got on the show that you guys all know this has happened because it's something that, that we as a team can all hang our hat on that we're not just spinning wheels here and we're not just entertaining that we're making real progress and making a difference. And we've actually we've helped to make something happen. You know, we've taken Ed that had given up on all of this, and now he's got a real powerful organization working on on his behalf. That's due to the fact that all of you have stayed engaged and stayed involved and helped out with this.
2: By you coming down here and getting those transcripts, getting them copied, getting them to us, your tenacity in reaching out to Mike, following up with him, and staying on everything, because of that and because of Everything else that you're saying because of the investigations that you've done in the case, because of your discoveries that you've made in the case that really are painting are very, it's not just that they, they, they caught the attention of the Innocence Project, but that they're, they're compelling enough for us to just, just take it from you. I mean, you don't understand how many years you've cut off the process for him by coming to us with the amount of investigation the amount of progress you've made in the case, all of the documents that you've come down here and you've scanned, that that has immensely, immeasurably accelerated the process in Ed's case because you have done all of that work.
1: Well, thank you for that. I I appreciate all of that and appreciate everything you guys are doing. And I'm I'm a little jealous because tomorrow morning, Allison is leaving me. and, And where are you going tomorrow, Allison?
2: I will be going to sit down and visit with Ed.
1: So Edward is very excited by the time you hear this. I'm excited about it too. and, And I'm bummed about it because I was hoping to be able to go with. I have not got to meet Ed yet, but I'm hoping to very soon. But Ed, I talked to him last night and he... Ed's really excited. I'm sure we'll talk about all this with Ed and how things are going without getting into details of what you guys are doing on on your end very soon. But thank you, Allison, again, for everything you're doing and for taking the time to interview with me and letting all my listeners know what's going on. And good luck with your mission going forward. And tell Ed I said hello.
2: I sure will. Thank you so much.
1: I recorded this interview with Allison about a week ago. And since then, I have been in absolute awe of her. Her tenacity and work ethic on this are incredible. The Innocence Project Clinic hasn't even begun. Her students don't even come back to the fall. So right now, it's just her. But she has been working her ass off for Ed. I don't know exactly what she's doing, but I know that every morning when I wake up, I've got two or three emails from her just asking questions about the case. Just trying to connect dots and figure out the big picture. She has obviously been working a lot of long days and long nights on the case already. And I'm really excited to see where this goes from here. And Ed really likes Allison too. As soon as she left from their visit, he got right on the phone and called me to tell me how it went. He said that he really liked her and he felt very comfortable with her. And he could hardly contain his excitement that there's actually an attorney, a real attorney, working for him to try to get him out of there. And he told me that he felt a little embarrassed because as he was telling the story, he got very emotional several times. It seems like the wall that he's built up, the armor that he's put on over these 18 years, is finally starting to crumble away. I talked to him a little bit about the Kerry Cook case and what was going on. And he told me that you just can't understand what that prison does to you. He said that he spent 16 years in what he called the building, which is the main part of the prison. He's a trustee now, and he works out at what he calls a camp, where he's a cook, and he has a little bit more freedom. He can move around. He actually has a little bit of privacy. There's only about 111 inmates in the camp where he's at. But he told me, and these were his exact words, that 16 years in that building fucked him up. He didn't really want to get into what he meant, and I didn't want to push him. But he was telling me that as bad as that was, he can only imagine how much worse it would have been on death row. But he said all these events over the last several months have changed him. He said he finally feels human again, and he made me promise before I got off the phone that I would pass this message along to all of you. He wants you all to know for everybody that has sent him letters that they really do brighten his day. He said he knows he's told you all that before, but he just couldn't express enough how appreciative he was to have so many people that care about him. And he also wanted me to say that there are a few listeners that have got onto JPay and have put money into his commissary for him. And he wanted me to make sure to tell you that he really, really appreciates that. But for anybody that's done that or anybody that's thought about doing that, to please stop. He said he doesn't feel right about taking that money. He said he's okay, he doesn't need it, and he doesn't want it to be about that. He said he loves the letters and he appreciates the gesture, but he really doesn't want anybody's money. And don't take that personally, because he also won't accept any money from me. I've offered to give him money before to help him buy stamps to keep writing letters, and he said that he just doesn't want it. But that day when I talked to Ed, right after Allison left, I didn't think that he could be any more excited. Over these past several months, the tone of his voice has changed. His attitude has changed. It's like I've seen the transformation into a completely different person. But one thing about Ed is he's not a bullshitter. Whenever he calls me, I always ask him, man, how you doing? And he says the same thing every time. And I mean every time. He says, oh, I'm all right. You know, I'm here. He doesn't pretend that he's happy to be there. He just tells it how it is. Last night, Ed called me. And again, as I always do, I said, how you doing, man? And his exact words were, man, I am great. I'm better than great. I've never been this good. I am so great. I mean, he could barely contain himself. I've never heard him sound like that. So, of course, I asked him what's up. And he said, man, I got a visitor this weekend. He said, my wife came to visit me. Without the kids, it wasn't like a planned Father's Day trip or anything like that. Just his wife came to see him and sat and talked with him for about two and a half hours. I didn't get into what they talked about. I just wanted to sit and listen to Ed sound happy. And so Kimberly, I know you're listening and you need to know that you made Ed's whole world when you went and visited him last weekend. And right now, as I'm saying this, it just occurred to me that this episode is going to be dropping this weekend on Father's Day. And so I want to wish all of you fathers out there a happy Father's Day. And I want to wish a happy Father's Day to Kenny Snow, to Carrie Max Cook, and to Edward Aights. Before I close the show out today, there's one more person that I tracked down while I was in Tyler. I went off looking for Francis Johnson, and he's not an easy man to find. And I didn't find him, but I did find a family member of his. This person told me that they'd passed my number along to Francis. And tell him to get a hold of me. But let me play you something that he said to me during this conversation. Yeah,
2: cause he he, he was uh he was going with him, but he probably was there that day and, and yeah. left or something. You know what I'm saying?
1: If you're keeping track, this is now the fifth person who suggested that Francis Johnson was at El Nora's trailer that night. Ed Eight says that Francis told him that out of his own mouth. Kenny Snow says that he overheard the conversation. Margie Jackson says that Francis told her he was there that night. Leonard Mosley told the private investigator that the person that killed Elnora was someone that she owed $20 to. And now Francis' own family member believes that he was there that night. All signs point to the fact that Francis Johnson was in Elnora's trailer on the night that she was murdered. And if Francis Johnson was there, then Edward Apes wasn't. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget that you can purchase the Truth and Justice The Music soundtrack from iTunes. You can buy one song or the whole album, and all proceeds from those sales go directly to Johnny for his work on the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And another big shout-out to my editor, Daniel Schaefer. I didn't get to mention him last week because I didn't think that he was going to be editing that episode. I was recording that episode late at night in a hotel room in Dallas, and I had told him that I was going to edit it myself because it was so late. But by the time I got done, it was one o'clock in the morning, and I had several sound bites that I had to edit, as well as the main bulk of the show. So I sent Dan a text and asked if he might be willing to get started on editing that episode while I edited all the sound bites. He told me, "Yep, send it." And at about 3 in the morning, when I finished up all my work, Dan sent me a text and said it's all done and it's in the Dropbox. So once again, Dan saves the day, and I could not be more appreciative of the work that he's doing for us. And, of course, I want to thank all of you for all of your support. It's been a rough road these couple of weeks, and it's nice to know that I've had this whole army behind me. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Keep sending new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You Could like the Truth and Justice Facebook page or follow me on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.